1: Let's start here, where I think the answer begins for everything and everybody, in the place of acknowledgement. Indigenous peoples in this country have taught me the most about what acknowledgement truly means. So everything that I've created for you happened here on Treaty 7 land, which is now known as the center part of the province of Alberta. It is home to the Blackfoot Confederacy, made up of the Siksika, The Kainai, the Pigeni, the Tatina First Nation, the Stony Nakoda First Nation, and the Métis Nation Region 3. It is always my honor, my privilege mostly, to raise my babies on this land where so much sacrifice was made. And to build a community, invite a community in, talk about hard things. As we together learn and unlearn about the most important things. That we were never meant to do any of this alone. Hello, humans. Welcome back. Welcome in. Uh, today might be one of the biggest days of uh, my life. Now, listen, I, in front of me, in the room, is a ter- a Tarek Haddad. And I got to tell you, uh, CEO, founder of Peace by Chocolate, recipient of the EY Entrepreneur of the Year for 2021 for the Atlantic, uh, selected by Google as the National Hero Case awarded RBC's Top Immigrant Award and Entrepreneur of the Year in 2020, and Queen Elizabeth's Platinum Jubilee Medal winner. Come on! (laughs) How can we even fit in this room? You
2: did great. You did a great job.
1: Oh, come on. I'm so excited to talk to you today. So um, this is a podcast about um, where you came from. It's called Everyone Comes from Somewhere. Absolutely. And I know to the core of me that we are all way more alike than we are different. Mm. And maybe most importantly, the difference between empathy and judgment often lies in understanding where another comes from. So tell me, Tarek, where would we start with you? Where do you come from?
2: Uh, i I come from uh, being a human being in the first place, and honestly, that is the uh, that's the the core of of my existence. I feel like from my journey I've I've been uh, separated from uh, from my roots and uh, from my home by birth uh, which is Syria I was born in the beautiful city of Damascus which is the most oldest inhabited place in the entire world and uh, unfortunately now it is being known as you know the the capital of the country that has witnessed the third world war in uh, our century uh, it's unfortunate really what what happened there but I always say that I, I come from uh, my values. You know, they are the main driver and they are really the, uh, the main cause why uh, I'm here today and why I've been able to, uh, uh, you know, to continue the journey of hope after losing everything. So I, I believe also, you know, the, when, I, when I heard you saying that, that the title of this podcast, I remember my grandmother, you know what she used to tell us? She used to say, you have to know where you came from to know where you're going.
1: Oh, oh come on, grandma. What was her name?
2: My grandmother was named Arabia.
1: Arabia.
2: Uh, so, in, in Arabic, by the way, e, e, like, you know, the grandmas or the person after you have your first child, you'd be called after your first child. So, my grandmother's first child was called Imad. So, she's called Um Imad. Um means mother. The ah. mother of Imad, who is my, my, all, my eldest uncle. Uh, and he's still now living in Syria.
1: Really? Yeah. And so, when I take you back, to those roots in Syria. I mean, your story is so remarkable. Eight years in Canada and... Not
2: quite there yet, but on the way. We'll round yes. up. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and a lifetime. You 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 lived many lifetimes before you came to this country. And so take me back to that grandmother and the story, because there's so much love, so much joy. I mean, as you talk about... Um, Can you tell us a little bit of the story about growing up in Syria before? Because, I mean, again, I'll I'll fast forward through this real quick and then we'll jump back. But, I mean, there's refugee camp. There is bombings. There is pain, death, suffering, all of those things rising from ashes that comes out of this story that we're going to be able to touch on a little bit today. And and an entrepreneur um, and a company that you've just, you single-handedly have changed this province of Nova Scotia by your love and your desire. How, where did that come from?
2: To to just go back to that point when, you know, we we're talking about uh, refugees. The moment I landed in Canada, I felt that um, many people that didn't know or they probably subconsciously uh, just misunderstand the reality that refugees, they had stories before they became refugees. Mm-hmm. They had lives before they became refugees. Yes it is it's really shameful and i think it is kind of it's unfortunate that our lives might be summarized within a year or two for us after we lose everything and then we become uh labeled you know an for immigrant, for an a immigrant refugee. or refugee yes. or or anything you know and that is i believe the uh uh the biggest uh the biggest mistake of, of our lifetime okay. so i i'm a big believer that uh, we had our stories to celebrate way beyond And before we became refugees. So that was since I was born in Damascus. And uh, to be honest, that that was the place that shaped me the way I was. I always say right now in 2023 that the three places that made me the person who I am today, my home by birth, uh, Syria, Damascus, my home by choice, Canada, and the place, the immediate place that really took me in, which is Nova Scotia. These three places are the places that really make me the person who I am today. So um, for our story back home, it was uh, was a mix, you know, of ups and downs. But for the most part, we were enjoying that social cohesion. Uh, we were enjoying the sense of family like like no other. Our family was almost we almost uh, 60 members. Uh, we were living in one building on the border between the ancient city of Damascus and the modern city of Damascus. So we had to try both, and we had neighbors that they. Some of them were even refugees from Europe after the Second World War. So Syria and Canada, actually, they share a lot in common. And that is Syria welcomed many refugees over history, whether from Europe or from Iraq or from Lebanon or from uh, uh, Armenia or anywhere, you know, that had witnessed war. And that kind of connected the dots for me, that the values of hospitality and welcoming Uh, was rooted heavily in the Syrian community and the Syrian society. And it is the same here in Canada. You know, the values of compassion, respect, the fight for peace, freedoms, and rights are very, very heavily rooted and and weaved into the fabric of this community.
1: And you lived that, right? I mean, that passion in your bones. And what I love, you know, in your early story, when we think about Syria, and this is such a white privileged perspective of this Canadian sitting in front of you is that when I think about Syria, I think about war torn, I think about scary bombs, all of those things that I can't fathom. What I love the most is your stories of growing up in that building where on different floors your family lived and connection is in you to the core. Yeah. Can you can you just tell me that story a little bit? Because I I want this community (laughs) to hear it, because I I wish as you tell the story about this and and listeners listen to this really carefully, you're going to want to have lived in this building. So so tell me about this.
2: Um, So um, after after I was born, my family kept growing in that in that building and the building was only a few floors in the beginning. So my grandfather, you know, uh, bought that that place uh, like, uh, you know, since he moved to. Uh, to that area in Damascus. Okay. But then when the family kept growing, they kept adding floors. And then until it really reached almost 10 floors, my grandmother was living on the first floor. We were living on the second floor. My uncles and my my aunts and my cousins, everyone was living in that building. And the stories that that shaped us were really the stories of celebration and the, the special occasions that used to happen there. So every Saturday, my grandmother would have a giant room in her in her house uh, on the first floor and she would invite everyone for dinner. Everyone has to go for supper on us every Saturday. You cannot miss a supper with your grandmother or she will kick you out of the building. She has no <laughs> joke around her Like attending a supper with the family was uh, an obligatory, you know, was, was yeah. an obligation, was uh, something that we had to do because uh, my grandmother felt that, that connection uh, between family members is the utmost Uh, It's of utmost importance because if you have any troubles, if you have any challenges in your life, you need that support, right? You need that social support. Now, it is different between countries, but culturally in Damascus, it has been that uh, in times of test, family is best. In
1: times of test, family's best.
2: That's what my grandmother used to always love to tell us. I love this woman. And it's really fantastic that my grandmother used to always find ways, you know, to make the... Every Saturday, different you know, like some Saturdays we used to celebrate birthdays uh, anniversaries newborn new babies, babies. Yes, exactly, yes, yes, you know people who just start visiting from outside of uh, outside Damascus, you know neighbors who were just celebrating you know their their child who just uh, got their uh, got their wedding or graduated from uh. a university or high school. we were the open house for everyone in the community, and everyone really loved coming over. And I remember around that house in that backyard, um, in, in, there was a, a giant, you know, garden that had trees of everything you would wish to really have—from Syrian apricots to lemon to berries, Damascus berries to pomegranate. Oh,
1: I can just to, feel it. I can smell it. I can see what it must have been like. It was amazing. Yes, yes you can imagine. I, can I, see I it because in we your were body. on
2: the first floor, so every spring, I don't have to go and. Buy any apricots. I can open my window and I can pick Stop the apricots from my window.
1: And so this is your youth. This is and in in this process. Was your father a chocolatier at this point?
2: He was a chocolatier at that point, yeah. Okay, yeah. So
1: he would, he was then, had a couple of different businesses in Damascus, is that right?
2: That's correct, yeah. Okay.
1: And so you were, he would bring home the chocolate. Did you, was this something you knew you wanted to do in the beginning? Like, did you love this stuff or did were you just, did you take it for granted? That uh, it was I, like
2: t- I took it for granted to be the son of uh, a master chocolatier, you know, like <laughs> the, the owner of the uh, second largest chocolate factory in in the region. Wow. And uh, we really, all my family members took it for granted because like we didn't imagine what life could be. We were born in that environment, right? Like the sure. moment I was born, my dad was already a chocolatier okay. and he used to bring all these kind of new flavors and chocolate. We were the taste testers in the house. Oh. And it was really amazing, you know, and you never know the value of it until you lose it. So yeah. uh, my father started that business in 1986 and then it grew uh, from there significantly. And he, he used to... Uh, to bring these chocolates, not really for the taste testing purposes, but because he wanted the family to to be the first, you know, of the of the people that they try these new batches that he's so proud of. Yes, it was a sense of pride more than customer oriented.
1: And and uh, and if I can just sort of talk about your dad for just a little bit, I think every time I've ever heard you speak of him in interviews, um, you talk about his desire to bring happiness to people. That's right? Is right. that is that truly who this this man is? He still alive?
2: He is. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So
1: is that truly who this man is? is Absolutely. This, is this yeah, the yeah. truth?
2: Yeah. He uh, he started that business because he's a big believer that chocolate makes happiness. Wow. <laughs> and uh, all and, you right, know, Dad. Ten four. And I mean. you know he started making chocolate because he he went to that wedding of my cousin, and then at the wedding everyone was eating chocolate and was having the best time ever. Uh, Syrian Syrian weddings are so fun. I just had mine. You really want to go? But you just had yours. I, yes, exactly. Oh, I'm so sad. But he,
1: missed it. <laughs> uh,
2: he went to that wedding, and then he noticed that everyone at the wedding was so. Really that's how eating it started. That, that's how it started. He
1: watched people eating chocolate at a wedding, and was like, "You know what? I want to be the guy." He's a civil
2: engineer. Ah! Like he he didn't He's
1: a civil engineer. He
2: didn't know anything about chocolate. Ah! The only thing he knew about it is how to eat it. And, oh, my
0: God. He's my favorite already. And, you
2: know, my my grandmother used to uh, to always joke with us. My He's a chocoholic by nature. Uh, she would go to him and she would say, Isam, last night there were two chocolate cakes in the larder. And now there's only one. Why? <laughs> and my dad would look at her and was like, Oh, it, it must have been so dark that I couldn't see the second one. <laughs> he would steal the chocolate cakes from the really? larder. Really? And then he would lie to us, you know, after after, after we were born, me and my siblings, my dad would just just be making up all these facts and would come to us and say, uh, well, uh, you know, um, kids, uh, that nine out of 10 people love chocolate in this world. And then he would stop for a second. He was a pause. bullshitter. He's a bu- then, he,
1: he makes stuff yeah, up all the time.
2: And then he said the 10th lied. <laughs> so everyone in this world loves chocolate. Uh, he's that kind of guy who really loves chocolate to make sure that, that uh, his product is not only there uh, to generate uh, to generate uh, income or a living for the family, but also to generate happiness.
1: Isn't that the definition of passion, though? You know, when I think about this world of entrepreneurship, it, 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 there, it's such a cutthroat industry sometimes that, you know, wherever we're at, can you work hard enough? Can you do the yes. things? But when you love it, when you know that it actually can change a life, yeah. Yeah. that gets you out of bed every morning. My right?
2: dad was a teacher that entrepreneurship is not about seeking success it's about seeking significance and you have to be in the significance business and the, the unique uniqueness business you have to be in the, in the passion business you have to be in the happiness business before you really call yourself an entrepreneur because if you are an entrepreneur for your own self uh, esteem for your own self passion without really making sure that you are making other people's uh, lives better other people's lives easier then I don't think really you're going to be in that for a long run. Yes. And uh, he really believed that uh, the selflessness aspect of entrepreneurship um, was one of the biggest aspects of that role.
1: So he grew this so quickly in Damascus, and then there's a bombing that happens. Then things start to turn. Can you can you give me a piece of that chapter?
2: Um, yeah, so business was, was growing really fast, Uh I was at the time um, growing uh, growing up uh, with, uh, with a medical background. You know, I got into medical school. My siblings were all busy with their studies. No one really was involved heavily in the business as much as my dad and my mother were. Okay. Um, and then in 2012, um, the war reached Damascus after the Arab Spring started in 2011, where, where people were protesting against corruption, yep. against, you know, the limits, the restrictions on their freedoms, on their rights. Some people were living under poverty line. The, the social injustice you know the the fights for equality the fights for uh having proper uh education you know the the basics and the of basics. needs yes. and really ending up that uh, that corruption that really uh kind of destroyed the whole uh the, the whole economy and okay. at the same time people were just asking for some of the the things that people in in Canada or in in, in western countries or in countries that they live in, in democracy, take for granted. They were just fighting for their basics of rights to say, I want to decide who's going to govern my country. And it was scary at some points, you know, because people were afraid that they're going to be tortured. They're going to be kidnapped. They're going to be arrested. So that's why it started in 2011 and then it turned into a war that was burning the whole country. And it burned Damascus in 2012. It reached our our uh, home uh, neighborhood, and since then, you know, my father and uh, my mother—they uh, were trying to protect us. So after five nights of living in our building, where uh, we were looking out the, the windows, seeing all of these bombings in the neighborhood, and seeing these soldiers that they were getting and breaking into some of the houses and taking all the men between the age of eighteen and sixty, and they were shooting them in front of their kids and their families.
1: Can you? Do you have those memories?
2: I do absolutely. Yes, yes, I do. You can still see I, do. It I can still, it I can still it. see it every day. You know, especially right. every time when you know we're talking about about Syria or now when I watch the war in Ukraine or all these news. Um, I feel like, you know, being a survivor, being a war survivor, gives you a responsibility to be the voice for others that they haven't survived. Okay. and uh, that kind of put that responsibility on on my shoulders to tell the world that how ugly the war is right and there's nothing good in war except its ending
1: I can see that little boy in that house where there used to be so much love that and certainly. and yeah. still was huh and then you're looking out the window at, at the injustice that was yes. happening in your on your front yard and the decision then, was to move the family. Is that, is that what happened? That's right.
2: So by the end of 2012, uh, we were, we moved, we had uh, two houses in Damascus at the time. We moved to our downtown house, which was safer. Okay. And then my, uh, my dad was still working at the factory. And it's funny that my dad kept the factory operating, even though it was, it was a war. And I would keep telling him that dad, it's a war. He would say that people need chocolate. I said, dad, it's a war. He said, people need happiness. I said, dad, it's a war. He said that the employees need to make a living to put food at the, on the table to their families. Yeah. He said, what kind of a leader an entrepreneur would be if they just surrender to hard circumstances? And actually, I just discovered a lot about who my family, my, my family's values were.
1: As you watched him. As
2: I watched, you know, uh, everything unfolds during that war. In a, few, in a few months, I just discovered exactly what our values were. Our values were all about people and all about purpose.
1: Because he can tell you with all of those words and those statements, and then he had the opportunity to show you.
2: A hundred percent. You watched that. Wow. And it was such shocking, you know, that like by the end of 2012, a mortar, like a a bombing happened at the factory um, 10 minutes after my father and all the employees left. And uh, it just destroyed the five floors of the factory. The second largest chocolate factory in the region was destroyed in a bombing. By the end of 2012, it was leveled on the ground like nothing was built. And then my dad didn't know what happened. He would come back home and then he would tell us, uh, we survived. The staff are safe. And then he didn't know that his, his uh, eighth child, We were our seven siblings, we we're a big family, but the factory was our eighth sibling. And uh, he didn't know that it was bombed. He didn't know it was destroyed. The, uh, then he would tell us that uh, everyone was saved. He would see the pictures on Facebook and then he was speechless for three days. Uh-huh. The only thing he would say that everything was gone, everything was gone. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, for, for a moment of uh, like reflection afterwards, I just realized that, uh, you know, like in uh, if you live in, in Syria, you would know how uh, warm hearted, you know, the people were and how supportive people are for each other. Uh, but in in the time of war, uh, it just becomes so dangerous. Everyone is trying to leave, right? Yep. Just fear, exactly. Fear divisive. just becomes yeah. becomes the dominant, uh, becomes so dominant in yeah. in uh, everybody's heart that everyone really is trying to protect their families, and yeah. that's you know their priority, and that's what they what they are taking care of, and that's why you know in 2013 my entire family just decided to leave the country, and they are scattered. So imagine sixty members of my family. Uh, 10 years ago, we were around, uh, one dinner table and, uh, now they are scattered in over 26 countries. My family now is everywhere. They are in Germany, they are in Sweden, they are in Spain, they are in, uh, Brazil, in Japan, in Turkey. So you just
1: went and whatever direction could go. So everyone who did, did they make those decisions or did somebody, you know, direct you as no, you left? No, every,
2: everyone just left into the neighborhood the countries, to the okay. neighbor countries, um, you know, you have to gain a refugee status when you leave okay. your country, okay. by the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR, yeah. and after that you can decide where to go. A lot of people just just went, you know, by boats to Greece, and then from Greece they went to uh, to Europe, to Germany, to Sweden, to to Spain. Okay. Uh, we were lucky that uh, we left to to Lebanon, although we are unable to um, to work or to do anything. But then. Uh, we said to ourselves, whether we sit down and play the role of victims or whether we dig down and find solutions and become victors. So in life, there are two options. Whether you become a victim or whether you become a victor, it is totally up to you. And it, it's, it's really based on the fact that as long as you are alive, you can rebuild anything. You can have a moment of rebirth and you can celebrate your second chances.
1: Amazing. And who, so in, went to Lebanon, who went? You? It was the seven siblings?
2: No, actually. It was, it was my parents and it was myself and uh, three other of my siblings. Because my other uh, sisters, they were married and they lived in Damascus with their husbands and they were just unable to leave. My sister Allah left uh, afterwards and she followed us to Lebanon. My other sister is still stuck actually in Syria to this moment. Uh, but it was scary because I couldn't get out of the country. I was in the age to go to military Sure. And they were not allowing any young people, any young man to leave the country. So they had all these checkpoints on the way to, to the border, to Lebanon. Yeah. And they were asking everyone, why are you leaving the country? You have to go and serve in the military. And my parents and my sisters, they were so scared. I have my, uh, another like younger uh, brother. He was like uh, seven years old. And um, my sisters were so like afraid, they were scared. They put me in the middle. And they tried to hide me so they don't see me from the checkpoint. Really? And it was just so scary. You know, at any moment, they could just have asked me to step out to the vehicle. And then my dad would tell them that we're just going for tourism to Lebanon. We'll be back in a month. And they let us out of the country in a miracle. And oh. when we got there, we just stopped the car in the middle of that night. And then we were just, everyone was crying in that car. Where everyone was crying. Everyone just like, you know, uh, a Breath of fresh air. The relief. The relief, you know, that we made it, we survived. Because, you know, like the the, the only, like the real victims of the war are civilians who were just born in the right place, but at the wrong time. Syria is a beautiful country. Damascus is an absolutely amazing city. Uh, But it's just about being born in the right place. It's a perfect place, but at the wrong time.
1: Oh, I love that.
2: And my family has deep roots there. But we said to ourselves, if we die, uh, we're going to become numbers on the screens of the media. Like if you go to CNN, if you go to CBC, if you look on BBC, wherever you want to look, everyone tells you that 100 people were killed in Syria or 200 people were killed in it's Ukraine. just a number. Just a number. They oh. don't give you their names. You're just a statistic. And we just <laughs> don't want to become statistic. It's as simple as that.
1: I love it. And and then how long in Lebanon?
2: We stayed in Lebanon until 2000. I stayed until December 2015. So I was in Lebanon with my, uh, as I mentioned, with my parents and my siblings. And then my family uh, left in uh, January 2016. My sister, Allah, came to Canada in November of 2016, like after us with uh, almost 10 to 11 months. Um, And we were able really to to make it, although, you know, in Lebanon... uh, we were unable like, to work or gain income. Where my siblings were unable to go to school, so they lost three years of their lives outside of schools. Uh, but we found a new meaning for life. And that meaning is just to live a life of purpose and service to others. Okay. We realized that life has more value when you operate from a place of service to others. Wow. And my family and myself and everyone in, in the community were just there to support other refugees who were not as lucky as we were that they left the country and they were injured or they left behind their, their mothers or their fathers. We were so, you know, uh, lucky that we, we we left and we had everyone in the family, although I lost my brother in law who was killed in the war, and many of my family members who were kidnapped, but we made it to Lebanon, you know, with my siblings and my parents and that was enough. That was more than enough. That
1: us. was more than enough. And during that time I would imagine that there was lots of community created. In that very scary place, right? Despite the fact that fear can divide you, in in that Lebanese refugee camp.
2: That's right.
1: I bet there was memories there. That
2: oh, there was there was a lot of memories. You know, we kept moving in Lebanon. We didn't stay in one place, oh, okay. and uh, we were hiding. We we're trying to uh, to make sure that you know that no one knows where we were because the Lebanese authorities would be following. You know, anyone without a residence, anyone who's staying there, who just came from Syria, because. Lebanon is an amazing and beautiful country. There is four million Lebanese, and there are almost a million and a half refugees. So, to put that a in perspective, quarter of the country. Yes, quarter of the country. Put that in perspective. You know, imagine if fifteen million Americans crossed the border a year to Canada. H- how how disastrous that would be! Right, that's exactly the scale of the crisis that was in Lebanon, oh and it was just gosh. crazy. You know, a lot of people don't understand how much the neighboring countries of of country in war have to suffer because they are the the countries that are immediately hit and impacted yeah we are lucky that in canada we live in in a on a peaceful continent that you know that that canada and the u.s have great relationships right like we we canadians and americans they cross that border every day for trade for tourism for visits for family connections but in syria and lebanon lebanon was uh almost like you know uh 10 to 20% the size of the of Syria and it had to take the, the biggest hit you know that that the uh, war really had to to impact to, that country yeah,
1: I, and as you're speaking you know i'm just thinking about this all the time before we went on uh live today we were talking about <sighs> the statistics that, you know, refugees and immigrants sort of get this status. And this is sort of my very naive perspective is that like, I forget so much that everybody came from exactly the same place. That's we all started with the same heartbeat, you know, listening to that in the wombs of our mothers. And we all come from that place of emotional regulation that bum, 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 bum. And anytime you rock a newborn baby, you do that same bum, 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 regardless of age, race, religion, socioeconomic status, gender identity, all of those things, we start in the same place. How? have we gotten so far away from remembering that when you label somebody a refugee,
2: right? I I see your
1: passion, right?
2: Absolutely. You know, the, like the, the labeled refugee, it's not a reflection of, of the, the status anymore. It's not a reflection of the temporary period of time that this human being had to go through. It becomes their whole, like it is unfortunate that you have people who have been living in Canada for for decades, and they are still referred to as refugee. The, f- the first title that they still have is a refugee, although they were only refugee for two years in their Gosh, life, right?
1: Right. And, and they're a just, mom and a grandmother, and a, and a business are, owner they are, and they are an aunt a, and whatever. a citizen. Like they are a yes! citizen
2: of of this country. They are a citizen of the world. You know Gosh. that they have a lot of accomplishments, but they're still being referred to as a refugee. It's not a, a derogatory term, but at the same time, let's just oh. talk about human beings for. The things that they are now, the things that they are that they were before they became refugees, and just not uh, summarize their entire life experience in this short period of time that they had to go through. And I think it is because of the only way now to generate empathy is by just feeling that you are superior to the other person. It is very mm-hmm. wrong, right? Like you don't have to be superior to to another person to to feel empathetic to their situation when somebody is going through a challenge or a trouble. You don't say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm in a much better position, so let me just help you out. I think we have to level up that, that, that situation a little bit and say, I'm a human being, you are a human being, let's help each other.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
1: Oh my gosh. And how desperate when you know, you've been in that place of desperation for somebody to see you, absolutely. to know you, to just in that moment, give you some grace because what that does then for you for the rest of your days. And t- tell me about that. I mean, you've talked about this often, how this is the motivation yes, for, for Peace by Chocolate, yes. for the company that you've built in in now this country. And so t- tell me about that. So you, you come off the plane, you see the Nova Scotians to the core of them i think are some of the most amazing people on the planet but they they're meeting you in the middle of the night with with no judgment yes. that they just saw you as a human that they That's wanted right. to make you yeah. feel safe yeah and that was the start of what tell uh, me the absolutely. next chapter
2: yeah yeah i know the uh that was uh that was life changing on on many levels you know and yeah. uh when i was leaving lebanon i just started reflecting on all the things that they have Being able to do, you know, with the United Nations, with WHO, I was helping on the refugees in Lebanon at the time there. But then at the same time, I was also reflecting on the fact that my family were counting down to death and Canada was the only country on the planet that opened doors for us. Imagine I applied to 15 other embassies around the world and no other country opened the doors for us. No one even accepted me for an interview. No one said, you know, let me let me just... Have a look at your application, or let me just look at your past, or see you know your potential. No one said anything, and Canada was the only country. I did an interview at the Canadian Embassy back in 2015 to come to Canada to continue my uh, my education to get uh, to go you're to MD. school. Yeah. yeah, and then they tell me that you know you have to do an undergraduate degree, so probably you're going to have to apply there. And then I applied. I didn't get the scholarship because you know there was too many people that they really applied. But then the ambassador and the embassy team, they they looked at all of our applications and then they would tell me that they, they saw some potential. They saw something special about that uh, that application. And they, they thought that by giving us a chance, they're not only giving us the chance to resettle in Canada, but they are giving this country a chance as well to continue giving opportunities to those who lost everything because of war and persecution. And that's why I was really lucky to... Have been invited by the Canadian Embassy, me and my family, to come here. I would land in December on December eighteenth in Toronto. I had no clue what this country was all about. The only thing I've known of Canada is the Looney Tunes double double. <laughs> that's the only thing that they told <laughs> me. No, uh, that's not a stereotype. That's what you'd hear.
1: <laughs> double double. You oh know, my like, goodness! You really,
2: as, as an immigrant and what would you expect? That's yeah. what you. That's what you find out when you Google <laughs> when you Google Canada, and it was so <laughs> hilarious, you know, that this country. Uh, this country is, is really amazing. It's well respected on the world stage. Like Canadians have, we, now I, I have to say we, I got my citizenship back in 2020, so I'm now one. Yeah. Uh, we have I'm a great brand across the world that we are a country of um, peace building, right? We we invented that, you know, we invented that peacekeeping uh, around the globe, you know, with the United Nations, with other allies, and we are very well respected that we keep our doors open to those who are seeking opportunity. We are a country built uh, on big dreams and, you know, with infinite possibilities. You know, we create the future and the world follows us into tomorrow. And I think that's really the, the main message. That When I came to Canada, I just felt that, you know what, I'm, I'm, uh, I have much more to my existence than just a, a title or a label. Or like a name or like a background or a skin color or a race or a religion or a dream or a hope. I am much more bigger than that. Probably I'm an accumulation of all of that, but I'm not one of them, you know, uh, in a a single way. And I believe that, you know, this country has uh, certainly offered us a chance to celebrate who we were without without, uh, prejudices.
1: Wow! How I mean, as you're talking, I'm like, okay, uh, that's it. I want to do more. I gotta be more. We got some shit to do. Come on, we need. And I and I just I'm amazed at how little it took to make you feel seen, that you mattered. That I think about those conversations. You know, like let's go in the middle of the night to pick up this family from Lebanon. Yeah, we always underestimate our power, right? We always think sometimes we need to have a, a a company. That's far reaching. We need to be the entrepreneurs. We need to be making millions of dollars. Often it is in those moments, those tiny decisions about offering a nod, a handshake, a let's go in the middle of the night. Let's buy somebody a double double. Yeah. That can not only change a life, but can save it. And you now, I mean, so you said you came, they settled, you settled in Anaganish, right? Yeah. Out of the gate, okay, which is a, for those of you listening, um, is a, a small community in this beautiful province of Nova Scotia. And what happens? Give me give me the version. Are you like, we need to make chocolate now? Because you started at like um, farmers markets. That's again. right. Yeah. So your dad yeah. was like, let's start mixing. Is yes, that what that's saying?
2: right. Yeah. Um, you know, to, to just to your point about the group that really came to the airport to welcome me, I started believing in the small acts of kindness more than ever. Okay. I started believing in that cab driver in Lebanon who told me about applying to the Canadian embassy in the first place. Really? Although he didn't have to, but he felt that he can help me. And it didn't make him uh, less. It didn't uh, make him more. It just, he just was happy to to help. And I will never meet that person again. You know, the person who changed my life is just still probably driving a cab they back in been. Beirut or in Saida in Lebanon. He wouldn't know the impact he made in my life, wow. my family's life. I'm talking about 30 members of my family now. Really living in this country and calling it home, and and celebrating a true meaning of belonging. So when my family and I we landed uh, in Aniganesh, we uh, when I when I came first to Anegnesh, I met this amazing group at the airport that they really. Restored my faith in humanity.
1: Do you still stay? Con- are you connected to them?
2: Oh yes, every day, absolutely. They came to my wedding, and uh, ah! I just attended uh, a citizenship uh, ceremony as well. It's called the Antigonish citizenship ceremony. We did it. We did it. You have uh, your own. We have our own. Yes, yes. You are a citizen of Antigonish, but uh, you don't necessarily have to be a citizen of Canada. It's just really hilarious that how the community really believes in the in the, the power of of fighting for social justice and. And uh, belonging, I think Mm. it's nowhere else that we'd rather be because of how this community has changed our perspective around developing a new sense of belonging and belonging doesn't mean uh, that you have to be in the place where you were born or the place where you met your first love or the place where you found your first job or we got educated. Belonging is being in a place where the people that they live there have the same values as you Mm. do. And they are willing to fight uh, uh, for your right to keep your own values at the same time. Mm-hmm. So Canada, Canada in general, you know, has a lot of people who believe in in uh, the power of kindness, in the power of empathy. Mm-hmm. But that community, in in specific, uh, they were they were they were there because they were not expecting anything in return.
1: Okay. Yeah. And I
2: think that's yes. the most important part. And that's okay. why when. We were sitting in our house uh, two weeks after we landed here. My dad would be looking around. He would tell my mom, he'd tell me, we need to find jobs. And then I told my dad, well, I'm going back to my medical school studies. I'm going back to do a degree. And then I would get the response that I cannot go back to medicine because it's going to take me probably 10 years of my life uh, to get to the place where I already left in Syria. So that's an additional 15 years of my life to continue my studies. And then I thought to myself, well, you know, we, we have to do something we have to use our time wisely we have to tell our story to the country because everyone was willing to listen and everyone was so excited and passionate and thirsty to know more about our stories yeah like i was at the airport in toronto when i landed i met the governor general for 10 seconds probably and people saw me on national news and they would come to me the next day in toronto shake my hand and say welcome to canada i would say, guys where did you see me I was like we saw you last night on the news Wow. I was like, guys, it was 10 seconds. How did you even know, yeah, know yeah. me? Uh-huh. And they were like, we're watching. Now. You know, and that, yes, uh-huh. everyone's celebrity it was just coming out <laughs> of that flight. I, and then I realized that, you know, th- this country follows these news because they really believe in the stories of people. And they believe there's a story behind everyone. Mm-hmm. And I started sharing that story every single day into every place I can. We got to make our own chocolate in the home kitchen. We went to the farmer's market. Uh, in May that was at the mall in Antigonish. So they closed the shops on Saturday morning and then you just go in the mall and uh, you'll be able to sell your product. They will give you a table and then you will be able to uh, display your product and, and sell them. And we started making chocolate in the home kitchen. And then my mother kicked us down to the basement. We had like a small tiny room. Me and my dad, we were working at the time and making these pieces of chocolate, you know, with ice molds uh, and, and ice cubes. And uh, it, it was delicious. I still taste the first batch of chocolate that we made in Antigonish. Really? I still can taste it.
0: It's right there. It's right
2: there, you know, like <gasps> the memories of, these, of this batch. Although it wasn't our best, but it was so delicious that it was so symbolic. That's That it. no matter what gets taken away from you in, in time of challenge, in time of war, in time of conflict, you, can, you have the power And you have the the power to decide when to be able to rebuild and reinvent yourself Mm. and give yourself that chance of a rebirth. So even in the, to give you just a perspective, I realized more during the pandemic that um, people were were thinking that the pandemic, for example, would be the apocalypse, you know, the end of the world, you know, that no one's going to come out of it. We're all going to die. You know, (laughs) I've, I've heard, I've got phone calls on the first day of the pandemic, more than the entire year when when even even last year and all the people that they were calling me my friends here they were asking me the same question and you know what the question was they were asking me how do you compare living in a challenge like in a war in syria versus living in a pandemic right here in canada and i said a simple comparison in 2013 during the war that tore my immediate family apart killed many of my family members we were forced to leave everything and we were forced to be out of the country. Yeah. In 2020, during the pandemic, we were asked to stay in our homes, and we were asked to stay safe. You see the difference? I oh. said I will take the second. I will take Remarkably a million. Remarkably different. I would take a million days in a pandemic versus living one day in a war-torn country. Right. Because I've been there. I said, full stop. You know, I would take. I will take a million pandemics, and I think that was not only life-changing or. Or that changed my perspective, but that changed their perspective as well. Truly, truly. Because when you hear the struggles of people that they have been truly in places of that they they their their dearest of things got stolen from them or taken away from them, then you would know. That our miseries, what we call miseries in this country, are truly the hopes and dreams of some people around the world.
1: Perspective is everything.
2: It is everything.
1: Right? And I mean, again, this is why we talk about this is the whole reason why I I do this podcast is when you get the story, that's where empathy lives. When you have that place of understanding. I mean, as you've spoken today, I mean, I need you to know this. Like, the more you tell your story, I think the more it is going... I, I hope everybody that listens to this now has a different take on what it means. The word refugee, the word immigrant, Absolutely. right? You, you've taught me so much. I just have to
2: tell you that, you know, like, something I forgot to tell you about the word refugee as well. It's really so important that no one was born to become a refugee. Like, it's so not So let a me say that one more
1: time. No one was born to become a refugee.
2: Like no one decides to be a refugee. It's not a decision. It's not a life goal. It's not a choice.
1: It's not a choice.
2: It's not a dream. Like you don't go to a young kid and ask them, hey, what do you want to be in the future? No one says I want to be an immigrant. No one says I want to be a refugee, right? Yes. It's just because of the circumstances, because of the places, because of the surroundings. But internally, inside everyone's heart, Everyone belongs somewhere and they want to fight for that belonging. And if you take that away from them, they're going to look for somewhere else. And I think uh, we were lucky that Canada was that place that we were able to call home now because a lot of people are still lost. Oh, and right. it is so hard, you know, to in find this a place moment. Yeah, in this moment. Yeah. To, to, uh, to have that place to, to call home. But I, I pray every day really for everyone who have do do? been through throughout that experience yes. because it's not easy.
1: And now, I mean, in this company, Peace by Chocolate, you, you know, you you grew, uh, created a factory in Anaganish. You now have a flagship store in Halifax, um, which I've been in, by the way, and it's phenomenal. Um, I, uh, over 250 kinds of chocolate, you know. That's right. Um, Created lots of connections to to companies, philanthropic work uh, with indigenous communities, with a mental health perspective. Um, you give back unbelievably, and um, t- tell me a little bit about that.
2: You know, now entrepreneurship and and business in general is all about taking off these selfishness glasses and putting on these selflessness glasses mm. I really look at the world differently uh, because. We are on a human race. You know, we fight for the same fight. Uh, we try to make sure that we are living a better tomorrow for, I don't have kids yet, but for our kids and grandkids in the future. And I believe that entrepreneurship is a, a power of leadership. It's it's a platform, you know, the use it. Why don't you use it? If you if you have that platform, why don't you use it? My message to all the CEOs that I meet is that you guys are are... leaders you know if you want it or not you are leaders you built something up from from scratch you know from the ground up you have been through so much you you navigated the system you have found yourself so why don't you give an opportunity to others why don't you use that privilege that you have to support others Mm -hmm. you know my family believes in that perspective that no matter how much wealth you can accumulate you cannot sleep on more than three pillows you don't need, you cannot wear more than one pair of pants at a time. Right. You you cannot be in more than one car at a time. Like, even if you own a hundred, you cannot be in more than one, right? Yes. You don't need much to live. Like, yes. you, no one needs a billion dollars to live. No one No one even needs a million dollars to live. Yes. Now we're living in inflation, so I don't know. Yet. <laughs> I don't know. But no one needs a lot of money to live. You know, you can live by the little as long as you are willing to to share what you have. With everyone else, those who are not as lucky as you are, those who are not as successful as you are. If you are successful, it is your moral responsibility to lift others to success.
1: That's what makes you rich.
2: And and 100%. And I think, you know, the uh, the, the what the company was doing when we started, it was, I remember, uh, back in May 2016, uh, we were selling at the farmer's market. We were making a couple hundred dollars a day. Okay. And uh, I would come back, and I would see the the news. My my parents were also watching the news, and they uh, would be crying. And they would see that how Albertans were fleeing Fort McMurray after the wildfire that that hit yes, there. Yes, yes. You know, tens of thousands of people lost their homes, and it was it was massive. It was a, a tragedy. And my parents, you know, uh, they they were telling me that they know exactly how it feels like yeah. to lose everything and being asked to leave. And then we sat down around the dinner table. I was telling my parents, we have enough food in the fridge. We have a roof above our head. Other Canadians don't. Let's share what we have with them. And then I would make some calls to my friends at the Red Cross at the time. I would tell them we have a couple hundred dollars that we made today. We probably are going to keep selling our chocolates during the whole month of May. We're going to give you guys whatever we can make. And I had no clue where that was going to go. But then I, I called some of the newcomer friends as well across the country and they were like, yes, we are. They were, they were stepping in. They were they were pitching in in that campaign, and hundreds of thousands of dollars were raised to the Red Cross. You know, from from just like a, a an idea that was generated because you know we believe that you have you can do so much by only inspiring others to do good. Uh-huh. And I think that after that, that was the seed for our Peace on Air Society. That was how it was born. Uh, from that campaign onwards, you know, we have partnered with. Uh, the Canadian Mental Health Association. So we support uh, Canadian mental health uh, initiatives right here in Nova Scotia and across the country. We have partnered with the Refugee Hub to help support and resettle refugees from across the country. Uh, WISC is the reason why we are all in Canada. WISC is the World University Services of Canada. And they are the, uh, the one that they got me to apply to the Canadian Embassy. They didn't give me the scholarship, <laughs> but I'm a big supporter for them because I know how other yeah. refugee students, they want to get to Canada and they want to continue their studies. We partnered with the uh, Trans Canada Trail. We make sure that that trail was maintained during the pandemic. For example, how many Canadians were using that trail to maintain their mental health, their connection Let's to nature, ahead. their Absolutely. connection with each other? Uh, the Red Cross is uh, our biggest partner of the peace and our society throughout campaigns from the wildfires in Fort McMurray to uh, to the war in Ukraine, where we uh, fundraised over a hundred thousand uh, dollars, to the Syria-Turkey earthquake that happened in February over uh, $250,000 that were fundraised. And just recently, you know, with the wildfires that happened right here in Nova Scotia as well, we were able to fundraise over $105,000. You know, there was a lot of campaigns that were done and the impact of those campaigns were life-changing to so many. You know, like the small acts of of kindness, they're just endless.
1: We're so great when we're together. 100%. But there are also
2: certain campaigns that we're so proud of that we made the commitment to hire 50 refugees in our uh, organization uh, train and support uh, 10 businesses started by refugees in their marketing and help for businesses started by refugees in their distribution. And uh, we are, you know, we are in in this fight because we know how many people really, they need that opportunity that was given to us back when we came to Canada. And we're just so honored, you know, that uh, giving back, and uh, contributing is just one aspect of of living, it is, I think, the most honorable aspect of living.
1: I think you're right. I think you're right. T- okay, so Tarek Hadad, what is next for you? What's the next chapter? You, t- I mean, I, I'm so interested. I could be here for three days. Okay, <laughs> so your wife.
2: Yes. You got one. I got one. Yes. Ha-
1: why? <laughs> Tell me Hello. <laughs> amazing. I mean, you're lucky, huh?
2: Oh my god, I'm the luckiest. I'm not only lucky; I'm the luckiest. <laughs>
1: Yes. I love it. So, what's next? What's next? What's the next chapter? What do we need to know about you?
2: Well, you know, like I, I've been really focused on the storytelling aspect of our brand and our story, and I've been really lucky to have done like interviews from the New York Times to CNN to all the national media right here in Canada to even in the Middle East, the top of Al Jazeera and and others. Uh, I've told our my our story in the in the book written by John Tatry told our story in a movie that was directed by Jonathan Kaiser, Peace by Chocolate, the film now is available on video on demand everywhere. It was released in Cineplex and movie theaters. It was, it is on Crave. It It was on airlines across the world. People were flying in the World Cup in Qatar last year and they were texting me saying that they watched the movie on their way from Vienna or from Rome or from Paris to Qatar to watch the World Cup. And millions and millions of people now are aware of of our story. But my my uh uh advocacy and and my role would would never end until really there's no need for the word peace because this would this should be like you know something that we don't talk about. You know, I feel sometimes that I feel embarrassed that there's really a reason even or a need to call a company Peace by Chocolate. Mm. Because why why would that be a necessity if we all love each other or we are all kind to each other or we have to remind each other of the blessings that we have. I feel embarrassed that we sometimes that really there is a need for that, right? Because that should be like a, a common sense. That should, should be, be like the thing, basics, right? Yes, it shouldn't yeah. be even a, a thing. Why would yeah. you have to fight for peace? It should yeah. be even the thing that we are born with. This this should be the thing that we are taught every day. So like you know there is there is no reason you know to do that. It should be it should be like something that exists out there without even having to think about it. Like if you call it. Oxygen by chocolate. Oxygen is, is out there. You don't think about it. No one really asks for it. it. It is already out there. It is for a fact out there. But I think peace is still a necessity because we need to be reminded every day that without peace, no one can go to work. No one can build businesses. You cannot raise kids. You cannot do anything without peace.
1: So can I tell you something? I think that you, your brilliant you're well on your way to creating that. And I don't know, I hope that Canadians know how lucky we are to have your brilliance. My question to you is, do you know how amazing you are?
2: I don't think I am. Thank you. <laughs> uh, that's, that's very flattering. But, you know, the, uh, the don't, reason... Don't...
1: don't do you know... I mean, when you sit here and listen to me for this last hour, I mean, and I know I'm trying to get you out of here, but like, I'm sorry, you might miss your flight. Uh, (laughs) Do you know, as you speak about this, I mean, you're a young man, you're, you're into the next chapter. You've survived a million lifetimes that so many people listening today, I mean, I, the fact that you've witnessed some things that so many people, so many tiny humans should never. That you have, uh, you've now created this business. You employ over 500 people in a country that is so lucky to have you. Do you get any moments to just, to just be in what you, your father, your mother, your siblings have sacrificed and have created? Do you, do you know?
2: Yeah. You know, I, I reflect, I reflect every single day. I, um, I also journal a lot. Like, you know, I, I write down things and every day is, is, a, is a brand new opportunity to do greater, greater things. And, uh, you know, like I write down what I'm proud of. I write down what I'm grateful for. I celebrate gratitude every single day because it just shifts my mindset from the things that I don't have to the things that I do have. And I write down what I'm excited about, the things that I'm looking forward to. All of that stuff, you know, has to be in one place. And I, I, I write that down every day before i go to sleep and it just every day just like a, a mind opening you know and the things that many people take for granted uh, but we are so honored you know to have been able to develop that platform that a lot of people are are looking for a lot of people are uh, missing on a sense of hope you know there's a lot of anxiety there's a lot of hatred there's a lot of fear out there uh, people are worried about their next day, you know, people are worried about their paychecks, people are worried about uh, about what what climate change might might bring in, you know, with all the floodings, like Nova Scotia within two months had suffered wildfires and floodings at the same, you know, within within a few weeks' time, uh, time span. And that's dangerous and that's really scary to a lot of people. Um, but I'm there to deliver a message of hope. And if I don't believe in that hope, then, how would I authentically translate it to others? Right, it has to be generated from from me. So I uh, I talk to my family, you know, uh, quite often about how how did all of that happen, right? And sometimes we just sit around that dinner table in our house. I, I was there yesterday, and my aunt was sitting with us. This is our first uh, dinner with my aunt since she came to Canada. We're just sitting around that table. It was like, wow, you know, we were like. Getting messages from people in uh, around the world, like some someone in France texted me yesterday, or like we watched your movie on Prime, and they were crying, you know, and they were saying how life changing that was for them, because for for once they just didn't believe anything good can come out from humanity, and then it just restored, you know, their that faith. the faith for them that yes, uh, when we are all loving each other. Yeah. Uh, I think magic can happen. And it's just at the end of the day, you know, my favorite motto has always been that love is the answer. Hate is the cancer.
1: Oh, love is the answer. And if if you want to be an ambassador of hope, uh, Tara Cadet, I can tell you that you've you've restored some hope in this heart. So I, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Thank you for the sacrifice. I see it. I feel it. I hear it. I know that you still live it every day. The success is apparent to everyone. Absolutely. But the sacrifice may not be. And I, I'm just honored by your presence.
2: I'm, so, I'm the one honored. I'm, I'm the one who's honored. So
1: thank you. Peace by chocolate. Uh, humans, uh, thank you for sitting with us. Um, everything that you need to know about this remarkable human and his family are going to be uh, in our show notes. Um, I cannot wait to see what's next for you. I will be cheering in uh, the biggest way, the biggest way. And uh, you have just taught me so much today. So thank you. I'm so excited.
2: I'm so excited. Thank you as well for having me. This has been an absolutely great conversation.
1: Everybody take it and run, take it and run. Thank you. I'm a registered clinical psychologist here in beautiful Alberta, Canada. The content created and produced in this show is not intended as specific therapeutic advice. The intention of this podcast is to provide information, resources, some education, and hopefully a little hope. The Everyone Comes From Somewhere podcast by me, Dr. Jody Carrington, is produced by Brian Seaver, Taylor McGilvery, and the amazing Jeremy Saunders. At Snack Labs. Our executive producer is the one and only my Marty Pillar. Our marketing strategist is Caitlin Beneto. And our PR big shooters are Des Vino and Barry Cohen. Our agent, the 007 guy, is Jeff Lowness from the Talent Bureau. And my emotional support during the taping of these credits uh, was and is and will always be my son, Asher.